Welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair, and it is good to be with you again this week. I'm really excited to have my guest for you this week, a very, very different um, really topic than I, I talk a lot about things like organic and non-genetically modified or non-genetically engineered foods and why I prefer them to uh, conventionally produced foods and things like that. But I get a ton of questions, so many questions about, well, okay, but USDA certified, what does that even mean? Can we trust the government to be certifying our organic produce and so on? Uh, that's a question I hear all the time. Isn't organic just really expensive food that isn't really all that much better or different than the stuff that isn't organic. I hear that a lot. Uh, certainly lots of people, including myself, would like to pay less, not more for food. So I get that sentiment as well. And then we have a, a lot of people are asking me about what genetically modified even means. So I was at a trade show. Uh, you've heard me talk about it on previous episodes. I met some wonderful people down there in Florida just a few weeks back, uh, about a month ago now. And I heard this gentleman speaking on a panel, and the panel was all about genetically uh, modified foods or GMO, what was called 2.0. And that was really intriguing to me because I wanted to know what the 2.0 meant. I had not heard that term before. And uh, fortunately for you listening and for me, I was able to corral my next guest. His name is uh, Hans, and he, he is the director of Mission and Messaging uh, for the Non-GMO Project. Hans, welcome to Vitality Radio. Thanks, Jared, and thank you very much for having me. Good to see you again after our trip to Florida. Yeah, it's uh, it's colder where I am. Where are you at? Uh, I'm in Bellingham, Washington, which is, I, I okay. could basically throw a rock over into Canada, right up in the northwest corner of, of Washington well, State. You couldn't have traveled further for a trade show if you tried. Right? <laughs> All the way down to the other corner. Uh, well, I'm here in Utah, and it's raining today, and uh, it's uh, it's actually a, a very beautiful gray day. I don't know why, but I like gray days. I like sunny days. I like all the days, I think. But uh, I, I didn't want to butcher your last name, so I'm going to let you say it. Yeah, sure. It's Hans Eisenbeis. Eisenbeis. Okay. Yes. All right. Hans Eisenbeis. Okay. Excellent. Um, so non-GMO project, non-GMO verified. We see labels all over the place on food. Um, what does it actually mean? Well, actually, before we get into that, give us a little bit of history of what you've done with non-GMO and and uh, before in your career. Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about me, and then I'll tell you more about um, the project, how we got started, um, what we've been doing, and and why we do it. So um, my name is Hans. I grew up on a small uh, organic dairy farm in southwestern Wisconsin. Uh, it was my great-grandfather's farm, so I was actually going to be the fifth generation on that farm. I sort of expected to take that farm over, uh, but life took me in a different direction. And at that time, I'm old enough to uh, uh, humbly admit how old I am, <laughs> was in the 80s. And it was really hard to make a living as a farmer back in the 80s, um, in large part because um, there was a long-term trend of uh, essentially get big or get out of farming, you know, small family farms like my fifth generation farm um, were really being pressured by larger farms able to um, sort of aggregate acreage 
um, increase uh, volume and yields and, and um, put small farmers out of business. So in long and short, um, I wanted to take over the farm, um, but it wasn't financially feasible for me to do it. And life really took me in the direction of um, storytelling, writing and editing. I spent about 20 years in journalism myself. And um, in that time frame, I got really interested in sustainability movements, um, whether it was uh, in the food industry, the food and beverage industry, whether it was in uh, automotive, whether it was in health and fitness. Uh, um, so sustainability was an interest I developed as a journalist. And I had the opportunity um, in my journalistic career to, to get involved in communications and marketing uh, on behalf of, uh, of some of the big sustainable organizations working specifically in the food industry. Um, so while I spent about 10 or 15 years doing market research to kind of track this sustainability thing as it was happening, uh, an opportunity came up for me to go back to the farm in a sense. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, I was invited to join the staff of Organic Valley, which some of your listeners may know is the, is the largest organic cooperative of farmers uh, in North America. They just happened to have been founded at almost precisely the time I was leaving the farm in 1988. Mm. And they were founded literally right down the road from my family, uh, from my generational family farm in Vernon County, Wisconsin. So in a lot of respects, coming back to the food industry was for me getting back to the farm. I, I moved back to Vernon County. I lived within you know, just a, a 20 minute walk of the farm I grew up on. So um, thus began my career uh, working um, directly in the organic agriculture food production um, system. And uh, I spent four or five years uh, working for Organic Valley, absolutely loved it um, and really got uh, immersed in organic um, uh, farming production. I worked directly with uh, our farmer membership, which is about uh, about 2,000 small family farms throughout North America. I spent a lot of time on those farms, working with farmers, learning more about organic, and then really turning around. My job was to help educate the public, educate um, shoppers everywhere about why they might like to um, choose organic over conventionally produced food. And um, really loved my time at Organic Valley. Uh, learned a lot about organic standards, learned a lot about the value proposition of organic. Um, and I had, I had some uh, experience working in the marketing space. And we dealt with this question all the time that you kick this off with. Um, the question that you sometimes get from folks, isn't, isn't organic just a marketing claim? Isn't it just an excuse to um, charge more uh, for essentially the same food? And whenever I got that question, when I still get that question, I said, the first thing you should do is find your local organic farmer and ask him if he thinks it's a marketing claim because the requirements <laughs> around organic production are serious, they're steep. It's very difficult actually to get your farm certified organic. It takes a minimum of three years to transition from conven conventional farm production. And incidentally, one of the first things you have to do if you are a farmer who is interested in going into organic, one of the first things you have to do is stop planting GMO corn and soy and stop spraying it with the chemicals, with the glyphosate, which I'm sure you've talked about on your show before. Mm -hmm. Stop spraying it with glyphosate um, 
starting now, and it's going to take you three years before you can actually be um, certified organic. And that's a big expense for farmers to go through because during that three-year time frame, um, they're still going to be getting conventional prices um, for what is transitional organic crops. And, and many farmers, you know, they're already struggling. They see the higher pay price that um, the higher price of organic food, and they think that might be a viable option for me, but getting through that three-year transition can be a, a huge issue. It's one of the reasons why those of us in the in the good food movement, you know, are really urging the U.S. government to redirect some of the subsidies that go into uh, GMO corn and soy and start redirecting yeah. some of that money, some of that taxpayer money to support um, organic and to support non-GMO. Um, so, um, from Organic Valley, I had the opportunity to come to the non-GMO project. Uh, folks often ask me why I might have been interested in doing that. And I saw that um, uh, organic being as difficult as it is for farmers um, to get uh, certified on farm. And, and I'll just remind your audience that um, organic certification covers everything from the farm all the way to the grocery store. So every step of the way, um, whoever's handling that food has to be um, certified, USDA certified uh, organic handlers. So it's not just the farm. It's also uh, the, the food brand that's processing the food, that's packaging the food. And then your local grocery store, for example, if you go into your, your local uh, uh, health food store or your um, uh, co-op grocery, um, if they cut cheese in the back, no metaphor intended, if they're literally cutting cheese in the back of the uh, store and wrapping it and calling it organic, that actually has to be certified once it comes out of the package uh, and it's processed back on their cutting tables and rewrapped. Um, a certifier has to come in and say, yep, everything's, um, everything's up to snuff in terms of certification. So organic certification is very rigorous from farm all the way essentially to when you get that food home, unwrap it, wash it, and, and put it on, on the plate in front of your family. So why was I interested in, in um, uh, moving from working directly in the organic industry with working uh, specifically on the non-GMO issue? I saw... Um, that point in the production cycle where farmers were really struggling to get to organic during that three-year time frame, no longer allowed to grow GMOs. And I recognize that non-GMO is actually the on-ramp. Um, it's the on-ramp for food production to get started in creating a better food system um, for farmers and for food brands. But it oftentimes is also the on-ramp for shoppers. You go into the store, mm -hmm. you see the butterfly, you're going to see the butterfly a lot more frequently than you will see the USDA uh, shield. We're just there. We're able to verify more products non-GMO today than than um, organic is able to in the big in the big scheme of things. Now, when you factor in fresh produce, um, that sort of balances balances out. So there's about an equal number of products that are certified organic um, as there are uh, verified non-GMO to the non-GMO project standard. Um, and I do just want to say that they're really complementary one to the other. Uh, we know I'm sort of a market research guy. We know that uh, on average shoppers really value seeing both uh, the USDA organic shield and they like to see the non-GMO project butterfly. And we can go a little bit more deeply into why that might be the case, uh, but I'll pause there and see if there's anything else that you want to follow up on. Yeah, I actually do have a couple of questions regarding that. And I want to get a, a little bit into the weeds on this uh, to, to make sure that all these questions do get answered, because I've got some 
I've got some listeners that are just starting on their journey. And up until, you know, who knows, maybe a few months ago, didn't even know what GMO meant. Maybe they still don't know what GMO means, but they believe that maybe organic's a path to take, that kind of thing. And then I have some people that are really into this, probably in, into it more than I am, and maybe should have their own podcast. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and they know all this stuff. And so some of what you're talking about might be, uh, you know, kind of old hat to them. But there are a few things that I think even those people would like some clarification on. So the first thing is, um, I'm curious is there cheating going on? People ask me that all the time. There have been articles written uh, where people have snuck onto, you know, organic farms and seen things that aren't as they should be, uh, that kind of thing. What's your, what is your feeling on that? Well, first, uh, well, um, let me first say the other thing that I think might be useful to your listeners is just to define what we mean by GMOs so that we have clarity on that. So, um, and then we can talk about the, um, the veracity of the systems that are in place. So GMO stands for genetically modified organism, and we use it kind of all inclusively to suggest, uh, to describe any food where genetic engineering has been involved in its creation. So it may not, the end product may not itself be an organism, GMO, but it is genetically engineered. So GMO is a term that um, we use as sort of a catch-all. Well, what do we mean by genetic engineering, genetic um, modification? It's, there's a highly technical definition. I won't bore you with that right now, but it essentially is anytime you're working at the genetic level to manipulate genetic material in an organism in order to um, in order to achieve a result that would not occur in nature um, without that um, modification, you're talking about a GMO. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. What the most common GMOs today are actually um, corn and soy. Imagine, uh, it's not hard to imagine how ubiquitous corn and soy and their derivatives are in the North American food supply. And the USDA itself has estimated that between 75 and 85% of all groceries uh, that are available in your grocery store probably can, can contain a GMO, a derivative of GMO corn, soy, and the other big area is sugar. Um, most of most of the sugar um, that you're seeing in processed foods is actually coming from sugar beets, and sugar beets, uh, about nine out of ten acres uh, grown in sugar beets are actually GMO sugar beets. So those are really the big three, and and the other um, categories would really be canola. Um, canola oil is 90% of canola or rapeseed, as it's sometimes called. 90% um, of those fields are going to be planted in GMOs. How are they genetically modified? Nine times out of 10, they are um, genetically modified to do two things. The first thing is they are designed to withstand the spraying of toxic chemicals, glyphosate, more commonly known as Roundup. So you might hear the term Roundup ready corn or Roundup ready soy. Those are corn and soy crops that have been genetically modified by inserting foreign DNA into their genetics um, so that they can withstand the spraying of Roundup or glyphosate. The other area that's most common, and, and those of us um, close to GMOs will use the term stacked traits. And what that means is uh, more than one genetic modification has been made. So the second common genetic modification that's made, um, often referred to as BT, I'm not going to try to um, pronounce the word uh, where that BT comes from, but it's the um, it's the bacteria that is used 
to insert this genetic change in um, corn primarily so that that corn actually creates and secretes its own pesticide that will kill things like the corn uh, borer worm. So those two things together are the most common um, GMOs we see in commodity row crops. And I, I use that term commodity row crops very specifically because we all know anybody who's taken a drive across the country can see field after field after field of either corn or soy. Mm -hmm. Dollars to donuts, the, the, those are GMO, um, GMO crops. Um, when you see a non-GMO field or an organic field, you're typically going to see a much smaller field and you're going to see it interspersed with other crops because of organic and non-GMO practices like um, row cropping, uh, um, rotational rotation. cropping. Yeah. yeah, crop rotations, exactly. So when you see those acres and acres and acres of corn and soy across what we used to call the corn belt of the U.S., mm -hmm. Iowa, Kansas, especially in the Midwest, um, that's going to be almost entirely GMO corn, or corn and soy. The other thing I wanna say about that is 40% um, of that corn that's being grown is being grown not for human consumption, not even for animal consumption, animal feed, it's being grown for ethanol, um, right. for biofuels. So um, we have a tremendous amount of our literal acreage and land dedicated to um, these GMO monocrops. And we can talk more at length about the damage, the environmental damage that does, the loss of biodiversity, the depletion of soil health and, and nutrient density in soils, because if you don't have healthy soils, you're not going to have healthy crops. And um, these GMO monocrops, you know, contribute significantly uh, to the loss of biodiversity. Um, that's now a global crisis similar to climate change and climate change itself. Um, you know, a lot of these crops really rely on synthetic fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers rely overwhelmingly on natural gas and other fossil fuels to generate them. So it's this, uh, when it, when people, you know, when people are oftentimes talking talking about GMOs or they ask me about GMOs, I will say, and I think Vedanta Shiva said this, this amazing uh, Indian Southeast Asian food um, philosopher, really, GMOs are not one thing. They're a whole system um, there. And that whole system is in industrialized agricultural food production. And at the center of that food production um, are GMOs. So um, I hope that's a, that's a pretty wide ranging sort of definition and conversation about what GMOs are. And we haven't talked about the next generation of GMOs yet, but we will um, in this conversation, which is what we were talking about down in Florida. There's a whole new generation of GMOs that are entirely different from those commodity row crops that we just talked about. And uh, really important for people to understand what's going on in that space too. But I won't, um, I, I won't, uh, offer any spoilers at this point. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear that because I think that's going to really uh, be interesting, especially again to the people listening who have already dug, you know, gone down this trail a little ways and understand some of these terms. But I want to bring this up just really quick because you, you went through it and explained it, I think, really well. But it's if to really, really simplify it, what I heard that I think is kind of fascinating and frankly, I think a little scary to me is that Basically, one way or the other, at least with corn, what you're getting is you're getting a an ear of corn that is essentially producing pesticides, or you're getting an ear of corn that's been sprayed maybe three or four or five times as much with glyphosate, 
which is, of course, an herbicide. Um, and so one way or the other, if you're getting genetically modified corn, you're ending up with something that ends inside, which also happens to go with like homicide, suicide, some of those uh, types of sides, which are not the kind of things I really want in my food. Did I simplify totally. that too much? Nope, that's exactly right. And as I said, um, remember when I mentioned stacked traits? So 90% 90 of that GMO corn actually does both. So it's been sprayed. And when I was when I was on the farm, when I was on the farm, you know, you see these huge spray tractors. They're the tractors that look like an insect that stand 50 feet high with the huge, huge tires and high axles. That's so that they can drive through fields of of corn, shoulder high corn, and still spray it with glyphosate. And I talked to local farmers um, in Wisconsin area, and they said um, farmers can spray up to seven, eight times um, during the growth season. So, and um, other pesticides and herbicides that you, you might have heard about, that your listeners might have heard about, um, are what they call pre-emergence. So you spray the fields before the crop ever ever sprouts in the field, because if you spray it after it sprouts, you're going to kill it. Not so with Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soy. You can spray it as many times as you want. In fact, you can spray it in order to kill it at the end of the growing season and then harvest it because it also acts as a desiccant. So um, you, you have it exactly right. There's, there's a good chance um, you're buying a product at the store. It has corn starch in it. You have no idea where that corn starch came from. There's a pretty good chance that it came from a field of GMO corn that was sprayed repeatedly with glyphosate and probably expressed its own pesticide in this, um, you know, in this BT format where it actually secretes a pesticide. I don't know about you, but if it's killing bugs that land on it and feed from it, I'm not overly confident that that's great for me either. Right. And that's, I guess, maybe the big argument that you seem to hear. There's two arguments that I hear on the regular uh, from people that are defending, I guess, uh, genetically modified crops and things like that. One is, uh, you know, we got to feed the world. And so the only way to do that is to, uh, you know, modify all this stuff so that we can have these massive yields and so on. That's one argument I hear. The other argument that I hear is that uh, it ends up it that the there is no evidence, basically, that any of this stuff is actually bad for human beings. So if you can quickly address those two arguments. Yeah, for sure. Those are arguments that we hear all the time. And there's a lot of, uh, I, I, I take a lot of issue with both of those, those arguments for a wide variety of reasons. But just to, to keep it real simple, uh, on the issue of feeding the world, the biotech industry, shorthand for the GMO developers out there, have been telling us for 30, 40 years since the development of the first generation of GMOs, we need to do this to feed the world. We currently produce more than enough uh, food uh, for the planet. In fact, we produce enough food for for about five, uh, well, I'm, I'm not gonna get the math right, so I won't hazard the guess. Right now, today, we waste one out of every, between three or four acres. So one out of four acres, if you wanna um, give the benefit of the doubt, is actually hitting the waste stream, not going into the food stream. So we don't have a food shortage, we have a food distribution crisis, and we have a food access issue. Um, we have been able to, 75% of the food grown on the planet is grown by smallholder farms growing organic non-GMO foods. Um, so 75% so of the food grown 
globally is created by small family farms, whether it's in Asia or it's in Africa or, or anywhere else on the planet. Um, so the fact of the matter is uh, we are feeding the world. We have a distribution problem and there, there's no real evidence. Uh, oftentimes the argument is made that um, these, these GMO crops actually increase yields and they may do initially, but over time um, it's been discovered that uh, organic production methods, non-GMO production methods, once you give the soil a chance to recover um, from the depletion that occurs through GMO monocropping actually meets or exceeds um, the, the crop yields of say a Roundup Ready corn. The other interesting thing is, and you can look this, your listeners can look the, this up uh, via Google. Um, you can look at a distribution map uh, of where uh, <clears throat> crop yields have actually increased since the introduction of GMO corn and soy. And what's really interesting about that map is that yields um, consistently increase in the area right around St. Louis, Missouri, which happens to be the headquarters of, uh, uh, you know, the historic headquarters of Monsanto, uh, now owned by Bayer. Um, so the other consideration around these crops is um, they are they are a monocrop. It's one set of genetics designed for one location on the planet. They are not going to have universal applicability um, region to region and locale to locale. Um, they're just not designed to do that. That's, you know, that's your definition of a commodity is universally, uh, it's universal, it's global, it's um, uniform, there's no variation. Um, and by the way, these crops all, you know, come heavily trademarked and registered, and you don't own the rights to the corn that you're you're planting. You don't own genetics. So a lot of people in the GMO um, movement, you know, take issue with the whole concept of private ownership of genetics. And, and that certainly resonates for me, and I'm sure it probably does for a lot of your listeners. Yeah. How is it possible for a private company to, um, to patent and trademark and own the rights to genetic, uh, you know, genetic material and genetic information? Um, so uh, that's the short answer to the feed the world question. The second question um, often that uh, often comes up is there just isn't any science that shows it's bad for us um, individually uh, for our physical or emotional health. Two things I'd point to to that. I mean, it's it's very typical um, sort of Western scientific prejudicial approach to any issue to try to look at it in isolation and say. We, you know, in controlled, uh, there, there's your key red flag, in controlled circumstances um, with science applied in this way, we have not been able to see any evidence of negative uh, health impacts for individual human beings. And, and that is, that's certainly true. I'll, I won't pretend that that's not the case, that there hasn't been convincing science over the last 30, 40 years that shows a direct connection between use of GMOs and, and the physical health of individual human beings. That said, I think a lot of people have questions about why we have an epidemic of type two diabetes going on in our culture. Why we seem to have an epidemic of um, autism spectrum, you know, spectrum disorder. There's a lot of health issues that uh, modern Western science has not been able to really wrap, it, wrap its hands and head around. Meanwhile, we understand the ubiquity of, uh, of industrial food production and recognize every human being needs to eat. We're seeing at, on a massive scale these epidemics of issues like type 2 diabetes. And a lot of people have questions and just say, 
what about this genetic engineering issue? Um, might that be having um, some as yet um, undetermined, as yet undetermined uh, impact on our physical health? The other thing I'll say about looking at GMOs, you know, in isolation as an issue of personal physical health is you ignore all the other negative impacts that come come to us from industrialized um, uh, food production. So what about the degradation of, of soil? Mm -hmm. What about water use? What about uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from industrial industrialized agriculture? What about CAFOs, concentrated animal feed operations? So if you want, you know, so that's where I usually drive that, take that question. Someone asked me, there is no proof that GMOs are bad for human health. And I say, well, what do you think about climate change? Is that good for health, human health? Let's talk about the connections between industrialized agriculture and climate change and loss of biodiversity. And again, bringing it full circle, um, GMOs are at, at the core of that industrialized agricultural system because a whole whole series of things has to change once you step away from that, that, um, that GMO treadmill, as we like to call it. Well, and there are things that we do know, right? Like we do know that having six to seven times, eight times as much Roundup sprayed on your crops is not good for human consumption, right? We know that there are issues with Roundup. There are people currently winning suits against Bayer uh, for cancer and a variety of other things that are that, that are you know starting to pop up when it comes to Roundup and glyphosate, things like that. We know that's a problem. Uh, we also know that the nutrient density, uh, and, and actually correct me if I'm wrong, because I've definitely read different things here, but I believe the nutrient density is quite a bit uh, different in a genetically modified crop uh, versus an organically grown you know, non-GMO crop based on this, I'm assuming the soil quality. I think that's a safe assumption because as I say, so oftentimes, um, those crops are grown uh, in monocrops where you, mm -hmm. you're not going to see a lot of crop rotation going on. All of the amendments that are added to the soil are going to be typically synthetic, fossil fuel-based, um, very specific, um, uh, say like nitrogen added to soil uh, for the specific purpose of growing that monocrop, but not for the purpose of building biodiversity within the soil. I'm sure on your show in the past, you, you may have talked about um, the uh, biodiversity of the microbiome, the human gut, yeah. right? Um, and there's a direct connection to the biome that's in the soil and all the healthy soil has a tremendous amount of active microbial and bacterial life in it. Um, so it's that holistic thinking and holistic understanding that ultimately is the conversation I want to be having with people that, that would prefer to talk about, well, there's no proof that they're, that GMOs are in and of themselves damaging the human health. It, when you look at anything in isolation in that, in that way, it might be possible to say, well, yeah, that looks pretty safe. But as a part of a larger system, um, it, it, you know, you pull one thread, everything is connected and you recognize the dominoes start to fall. So while we might not be able to point to individual, one individual, you know, uh, has an explicit health issue related to the consumption of GMOs. On the other hand, Again, thinking holistically, whole system. Why, why is our food today, in some cases, 50, 60% less nutrient dense than it was 100 years ago? Uh, it's the farming practices that are highly industrialized, um, that don't take into account uh, how to naturally um, sustain biodiversity in our soils, in our fields, in our diets, um, and ultimately, you know, to the benefit of the planet. 
Well, I love what you said there because I'm a big microbiome guy. Anybody that listens to Vitality Radio has only heard me use that word about a thousand times. Uh, <laughs> the microbiome, of course, in the human gut and on the human body um, is uh, is its own thing. But we are built, I believe, to live in this environment with all of these other bugs, for lack of a better term, and 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 benefit from the commensal uh, benefits of those types of organisms. But if we're constantly spraying or creating within the crop itself pesticides and herbicides, then clearly the microbiome of the soil itself is being uh, hammered away at consistently uh, within these crops. And that cannot, in my view, be a benefit to uh, to human nutrition for sure, and I would anticipate quite a detriment. Yeah, I mean, a number of tests have been done on the ubiquity, the presence of of glyphosate residues, right, in foods and actually in the human human microbiome, in our urine. Um, so glyphosate is ubiquitous. It's been used around the planet. I think they find it in ice cores taken from from the Antarctic, from the Arctic, right? So it is everywhere. It's in everything at this point. And what it just, it gives you pause, right? When you consider the importance of the microbiome and at the same time, it's inescapable uh, unless you're really diligently eating organic, you know, non-GMO local foods that you know to be somewhat protected or insulated from that. Um, it can't be a positive thing on our microbiome to be um, taking in all of these uh, chemical residues at, at, at any any measurable level at all. And that, that touches on an issue that a lot of us talk about in the natural products industry, and that's the precautionary principle. Let's, let's have proof that it does no harm before we start engaging with some of these biotechnological solutions and chemical and synthetic solutions um, for food growth. Let's not have um, the wool pulled over our eyes under this concept of, oh, we need this to feed, feed the planet. Well, we may be feeding the planet and poisoning it at the same time. And I think there's, uh, you know, thought in, in that sort of holistic perspective, we are poisoning the planet. And I will say just to pause and give a little bit, bring us back to ground a little bit about my work with the Non-GMO Project. So this, there's awareness of these issues. There's concern around these issues. And there has been for the last 20, 30 years, uh, organic really emerged as a modern movement, you know, 60s and 70s, although it had sort of uh, established a foothold uh, in the 30s and 40s um, with uh, J.R. Rodale and 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 Rudolf Steiner. But that was really before chemical farming, um, uh, the green revolution, as we sometimes call it, G the development of GMOs happened, you know, really 60s, 70s, and 80s. So you have the organic movement emerge in the 70s. Um, back then, we called it the natural foods movement. Mm -hmm. There was an intuitive recognition that food grown using, you know, heavy use of of uh, chemical fertilizers, chemical herbicides, chemical pesticides, you know, that generation experienced Vietnam. What was one of the biggest, um, scariest health issues that came out of the Vietnam War was Agent Orange. And Agent Orange was made up of dicamba, which was now being used in our, in our, in our agricultural fields. So um, I think it was natural for um, that generation in the 70s, many of whom wanted to get back in touch with uh, the back to land movement and growing food naturally and and wanting to distance ourselves as far as we as we really could from literally the weapons of mass destruction destruction in the form of 
these industrial chemicals that were being used. Right. Um, so there, so there's uh, the 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 story begins to uh, lay itself out around organic, and then when you get to the late '70s and early '80s, you have these large biotech companies starting to develop. Um, the corn and soy that we talked about already as a new application for these kinds of synthetic chemical poisons. Um, and the, the, the scary thing is how quickly uh, North American farmers were to, um, to engage with that and to take it on. And within one generation, you know, uh, GMO corn and soy took off. It made farming, a, there's no way around it. It made farming a lot easier. It's hard to manage for weeds and pests naturally. And this is the reason why uh, organic farmers get paid more for the, for the products, products of their farms because it's significantly more labor intensive than it is to simply jump in your tractor and spray your fields and, and uh, move on to the, next, the day's next piece of work. So, um, there was awareness that this was happening. Um, consumers, shoppers, people became more and more aware and more and more concerned about issues like the presence of chemicals in their food. They have organic, but now what about this, this GMO thing? And so uh, 20 years ago, there was a growing grassroots movement among people like you and I going into the grocery store, asking store staff, asking friends, neighbors, I'm hearing there's GMO, you know, I, I look out my back door uh, and I visit my neighbor's farm and I see these rows and rows and rows of corn and soy. They're going into the food system. I know they're genetically modified. Um, I, I'm concerned about that. And I'm concerned that I have no way of knowing when I go to a store, whether I might being a, be buying a product that's, um, you know, genetically modified. So a movement started you know, 20 years ago to require the U.S. government or, you know, request that the U.S. government require the labeling of, of food for the presence or absence of GMOs. That was a grassroots movement. And there were movements state by state, Vermont, California, Maine, there were a handful of other states um, that were going to begin to require uh, food companies to label their foods to do, to identify whether GMO um, ingredients were included in that product. Well, that movement ultimately um, led to two things. It led to the founding of the non-GMO project, um, my current employers, uh, back in 2007. And it also led the federal government to start to respond to those requests. And by 2016, during the Obama administration, a, a law was actually finally passed called the National Bioengineered Foods Disclosure Standard. Um, so it was passed in 2016, and then it went into full effect um, uh, in January of last year, just one year ago, um, the federal government finally required uh, the labeling of GMOs, even though a new term was invented bioengineered foods as opposed to GMOs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it doesn't cover all GMOs. It covers only a small number of GMOs. We can talk about that uh, um, a little bit more if folks want to know more about that. But go to the grocery store, look at a typical uh, conventional product, um, look at a box of cookies, look at a, look at a package of, uh, of pasta, um, any processed food um, that's from a conventional food brand. And oftentimes today you will now see on the ingredient panel, a disclosure that says this food 
contains a bioengineered ingredient. So that was a, a result of the, the grass. That's the best that we could get out of the federal government. And as I say, it doesn't cover, um, it doesn't cover all GMOs, not by any stretch. It doesn't apply to uh, milk, to meat, to eggs, even though, um, even though uh, those chickens and those pigs or the, the, those cows may have been fed a diet of 100% GMOs. Um, it, so it doesn't require that. You could buy, you could go into a store today and buy a bottle of canola oil um, that was 100% created, that's 100% canola from a field of GMO canola, and it won't necessarily require that disclosure. Why? Because a lot of these products are so highly refined that there's no longer genetically modified material in the end product. And the federal government law says if you can't detect modified genetic material in the end product, then, then um, you don't have to make a disclosure. So there's a lot of issues around that new law. It's uh, from our perspective, it isn't sufficient. If you are, if you want to avoid GMOs, um, that new federal law isn't, isn't necessarily your best bet. And this is going to sound self-serving, um, but I, I really do believe it. If you want to avoid GMOs, your best bet today is, is, is still going to be to look for the non-GMO project butterfly. And we'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about why, um, from our perspective, organic isn't quite enough um, when it comes to concerns specifically around GMOs. And I know you brought up this issue of um, the veracity. Can we believe these labels? Yeah. What does organic do? What does non-GMO do to ensure um, the veracity of these certification methods? Yeah, so the question really is, yeah, first off, we talked before we started recording. For whatever reason, there are people believe it or not, they don't trust the government. They don't trust, you know, government organizations, right? And and so they're not really uh, thinking that, oh, anything that starts with U.S. and ends with A, you know, <laughs> or maybe it's FD and ends with A or, you know, CD and ends with C. But anything that comes from the government, for some reason, people aren't 100% on board with trusting. Maybe they don't trust politicians anymore or whatever. Um, and of course, I'm being, well, people that listen to this show know I'm being facetious here. But uh, with that, it is challenging even for me as a guy who is very much on board with the non-GMO and organic movement and, and buy, and I look at labels. I spend way too much time in the grocery store looking at the back of a label. Uh, my grocery shopping trips are extensively longer than they need to be because of this. But with that, I am looking to the federal government to certify to me that something is grown organically. And I don't like relying on them. In fact, truthfully, I would rather rely on a, an, a group like a non-GMO project because I, I believe in the organization a lot more than I believe in the organization, the USDA. So then the question is, can we rely on that standard? Yeah, it, it is a really good question. And I get skepticism about the federal government. And, and generally, my, my own personal perspective is the federal government and its various agencies um, are oftentimes trying to um, regulate at the bare minimum amount, you know, uh, that will be ac acceptable or accepted, um, right? So there's a constant effort to um, not put the brakes on industry, um, to kind of make the world safe for capitalism in every way. And, and of course, 
make it safe is kind of where the rub is, right? right. So is the, is the EPA doing enough to protect air and, and water quality, balancing that against what, you know, for-profit corporations are telling us, uh, don't worry about it, kind of sweeping it under mm -hmm. the rug uh, and not really um, totally accounting for the upstream and downstream damage that they might be uh, causing in the in the effort to maximize profits to shareholders and that type of thing but i will say about organic uh, organic is an optional program right so farmers opt into it uh, they decide i think that i want to be a part of that market it's not required the government doesn't require anybody anybody to grow organically it doesn't obviously doesn't require shoppers to buy organic. All the USDA has done through the National Organic Program is establish a baseline standard. Um, and they and the government itself does not do the certification. It works, you know, you have to be an accredited third party certifier, an organic certifier um, uh, is the actual certifying body who does the work of looking at the food, going to the farm, visiting it, looking at soil samples, looking at feed samples, um, that sort of thing. So oftentimes this might be useful for your, for your listeners. You see a product is uh, USDA organic. It's got the shield on the front. Oftentimes, if you look at the back package or somewhere else on the package, it'll tell you who the actual certifier um, was who who conducted that certification. And that might be um, CCOF, which is um, California Certified Organic Farmers. It might be Oregon Tilth. Mm -hmm. um, it might be uh, MOSA, Midwestern Organic Services Association. So there's a number of um, certifiers. I forget, it's, it's literally hundreds and there's probably one right down your street. There is one right down the street. For me in Washington state, the state of Washington is, is uh, is uh, a certifier. Oregon Tilth is right down the road from me here. So mm -hmm. we have these third-party certifiers, and oftentimes what we're hearing from the um, third-party certifiers is if they have a bone to pick with uh, the National Organic Program, the USDA, it's that it's not strict enough. Then it needs to be a little bit stricter. And this is true for uh, a lot of regulations, right? Certainly true in the GMO space. Like we don't think the federal government is is uh, rigorous enough in its requirements and its regulations around the GMO issue. But thank goodness the organic um, system is um, opt-in for both farmers and for consumers. And any organic certifier can choose to increase the rigor of their standard at any time. Many of them often do. I'll give you one example. Um, and this touches on both the organic and the non-GMO question. Um, and it actually touches on the fraud and contamination issue. So organic, the National Organic Program does not require testing for the presence or absence of GMOs. So you've got an organic dairy, you have cows on pasture, um, you give them organic feed. Um, uh, the US government, the National Organic Program does not require that that feed be tested um, to see whether it's GMO or not. Um, they don't require the testing, but a local organic, the certifier might. So the certifier might say, you know, we have a question about a, a neighboring field. There might be some contamination going on. We're going to go ahead and test that feed just to confirm that it's organic and that it's non-GMO. Um, 
the fact that organic doesn't do that um, universally, it's not required for NLP, is a cause for concern because you can have those contamination events happen or you can have fraud happen. There's a big case of fraud going back now about 10, 15 years, uh, a farmer, producer, distributor in Missouri was taking GMO feed and trying to sell it into the, uh, he was actually trying to um, sell it into the non-GMO market. Um, and uh, for folks that are in the non-GMO space, and just to distinguish, non-GMO project is we're independent third party nonprofit. We are not government um, organized or run or anything. We operate independently of USDA and the US government. We're just our own little private nonprofit with a non-GMO standard. You can meet it or you can choose not to meet it, so on and so forth. But under our standard, we actually require testing uh, of any uh, what we call a high risk crop. So if it's corn or it's soy or it's canola or it's sugar derived from sugar beets, it's going to go to a testing lab um, and uh, just to confirm. And what happened in this fraud, uh, fraud case, the man's name was Randy Constant. He uh, was trying to sell in, he was trying to sell as non-GMO um, this feed and it tested hot and it was rejected um, by the buyer saying this is not non-GMO. It's testing as if it's GMO. I don't know what you got going on here. Either it's contamination or fraud, but we're not going to accept it. He turned around then and tried to sell it into organic, uh, into the organic marketplace, um, knowing that there, there may or may not be testing required depending on who you were dealing with in that space. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, he, he was caught ultimately um, not by the National Organic Program, not by uh, ag folks, but um, ultimately it was the FBI because he was taking his his filthy lucre, as it were, and he was spending it at Las Vegas on on <laughs> uh, you know on having a good time in Las Vegas. So a lot of questions came up about where where he'd come up with the funds um, for that bad behavior. And you know it's a tragic story because um, he was due to come up uh, on trial and ultimately committed suicide in jail. So wow. um, not not a happy story, um, a, a really sad ending in a lot of respects. The other thing I'll say about organic. Um, uh, to its credit, um, the USDA National Organic Program, they have a database that you can go and look up. Uh, uh, I might think of its name. It's got a really simple name. I think it's called the Integrity Database under the NLP. You can check and see um, the current status of any organic farmer, organic brand, um, current status as to their organic certification. And when a question comes up, uh, and the veracity of their organic certification is in question, they may show up on that integrity database as having a, a temporarily suspended uh, organic certification, or in some you know, extreme cases, um, they're no longer consider, you know, they're not, they're no longer, their certificate of, or, of uh, organic, um, of organic process has been withdrawn or, or denied. So it's a useful tool for those folks that want to go deeply into uh, integrity of organic farms. Um, what we do at the project is, as I mentioned, we, we do require testing for the presence or absence of high risk GMO crops. Um, so at uh, at the beginning of the food production cycle. And then at the end of the production cycle, we have a what we call a surveillance program, which sounds a little scary, but it just means we randomly sample products that from grocery stores. We randomly um, uh, select products and then test them to see, to just 
uh, provide insurance that there hasn't been some contamination event somewhere along the line. And the good the, the good news about that from both a consumer and from a from a shopper perspective and from some of the big brands that value being non-GMO verified that if we do detect higher levels than we want to see in a product, then we can work directly with that brand to, to correct for that situation um, so that, you know, we do catch contamination events when they happen. And naturally, they are going to happen. Hopefully, the other thing I'll say about the fraud issue is um, the organic community and the non-GMO community are, are generally speaking, really high in integrity, good folks who care about the right things. And you might expect there to be a lot more fraud in the organic community or the non-GMO community than there is. Um, but I, I really believe it's a movement. It's shared values that, um, that um, you know, farmers and food companies share. Um, that said, contamination does happen because our whole food system is built, really, it's the way our, our cities are all built for cars and not pedestrians, right? Our agricultural system as it exists today is really built for GMO conventional food production. And, and those of us in the organic and non-GMO and natural food space are really trying to shift shift it and, and fix you know everything that we see broken about that system. Yeah, you almost have to work around the system that's in place uh, in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. And contamination then would be not fraudulent, but would be accidental. Uh, but if you detect it, then you can go in and, and figure out what the problem is and fix it, is essentially what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay, excellent. So I've already taken you longer than I said I would. Are we okay to talk 2.0 for a minute or do you need to get out of here? Let's let's absolutely do it. And I apologize that I'm, you know, I'm I'm quite the long-winded okay. storyteller. So I apologize We're for that. Two peas in the pod there. Okay, so this organic 2.0 thing was really interesting to me. I didn't know what it meant when I first saw that uh, there was going to be a panel, um, and but it was very intriguing. And then as I read into it, there was a little paragraph that kind of explained what you were going to be talking about. Then I was really intrigued, and frankly, it was fascinating stuff. I know we don't have 40 minutes or however long that panel lasted to go into it, but if you can explain what you mean by totally different than what we just talked about with genetically modified, why it matters, what consumers need to know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we talked about genetic engineering 1.0. That was really about inserting um, foreign DNA um, from one species into another species. We didn't talk a great deal about that, but uh, essentially that was um, what we call transgenic modification. You're taking genetic material from one species, be it animal or plant, and, and placing it in the genetic material of another. That is still going on today, but what we're talking about is at the microbial level. So some of your listeners may have heard a couple of terms kicking around. Synthetic biology is a term that gets used, and precision fermentation is a term that's increasingly being used. Um, I, I want your listeners to know that when you hear those terms, it should be a red flag. It's another case of the biotech industry trying to invent new words to uh, you know, avoid having to say GMO or genetic engineering. So what are we talking about? Um, I'll give you one example. Um, you can buy ice cream today that's real dairy ice cream that's being promoted as animal free. It's got real dairy whey in it but it's animal free. How can that be? Well, what they've done is they've started to genetically engineered simple microbes like yeast or bacteria. They've um, genetically modified 
at the microbial level so that those yeast will create, uh, will express real dairy whey. So what they've done is they've taken the genetic coding from a dairy cow, inserted it into a yeast microbe, and then you feed that yeast microbe some, you know, feedstock, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but um, it brews in a big stainless steel vat. And what you end up with is this whole slurry, kind of like, uh, what was it called? The, the wart uh, when, you grew, when you brew your own beer. So it's got all kinds of microbial life in it. Uh, you, you throw in some antibiotics to kill off the old life, and then you skim off um, you, you filter it all out, and at the end of at the end of this process, supposedly you've got real dairy whey that was not created by a cow; it was actually created by yeast. And um, this is happening not just in the dairy uh, for dairy whey and casein; it's now being done for things like collagen and fat. Um, one example that maybe um, the best example that probably all of your listeners have heard about, which is Impossible Burger. Mm -hmm. The Impossible Burger is that plant-based burger that magically bleeds like a real hamburger and magically tastes like a real hamburger. And um, the quote unquote secret sauce of the Impossible Burger is something that they've called heme, H-E-M-E. -E. Um, and that is supposed to, on some level, um, replicate what the role of blood in typical animal-based proteins is. So it adds sort of an irony flavor. It adds that savory umami kind of um, um, taste. Uh, so it's being promoted as that special ingredient that will make a plant burger taste a lot more like a real hamburger. Well, that heme is created using precisely this process. It's used by taking yeast, microbial, bacterial life, feeding it, genetically engineering it so that um, when you put it into a vat with a lot of feedstock, um, it will express this flavoring and colorant that they call heme. Um, so that we're, we're talking about a completely different approach to genetic engineering, a completely different style of food production. But at the end of the day, it's still um, genetic engineering. And the reason why I say that, it's important to say that is there's a lot of really bizarre engineering techniques going on at the biological level. So the bioengineering, genetic engineering, uh, people are creating all kinds of things at the genetic building block level of life. So it's really important that we have definitions, right, about what is genetic engineering and what might be yeah. some other form of food production. So synthetic biology, precision fermentation, at the end of the day, it's the same genetic engineering techniques that have always been used in GMOs. It's just applied to microbes and microbial life so that um, they can express the kinds of things that we're talking about, whether it's whey or this heme or a whole host of other products. Um, and by the way, this is hitting every, every um, aisle at the grocery store. We're starting to see products that are microbially derived, what we would call synbio or precision fermentation products. And it happens, it's happening a lot in the enzyme space, the flavoring space, the colorant space, but um, in these larger uh, categories like proteins and, and sweeteners and so forth. So um, why do we, why, because it's so different, it's not being grown in a field, what, should we care? And uh, here's really where the rub is. Um, 
energy has to come from somewhere, right? So you've got a vat full of yeast and microbes. You want them to express what you've genetically engineered them to express, um, whether it's heme, whether it's collagen, whether it's whey or casein. You got to feed those yeasts something. What do they end up getting fed? We're pretty sure. We don't know because this industry really lacks transparency. They're really secretive. But the most obvious and least expensive feed source is going to be GMO corn, GMO soy, right? Because it's sugar, right? You, you want to feed yeast sugar. Um, so where does most of that sugar going to come from? High fructose corn syrup, sugar beet sugar, uh, soy sugars, that type of thing. So we're pretty sure if you had to guess, you know, at scale, we want of, of uh, uh, sugars, you know, simple sugars to feed to microbial life. So you haven't really resolved the GMO issue at all. You're still going to be relying on row crops of corn, soy, sugar beets. You're still going to be depleting soil health. You're still going to require synthetic fertilizers and uh, uh, pesticides and herbicides. And at the end of the day, there's, then there's the waste stream, right? So what we do know about this industry, you, it's very hard to find information about these companies, but some of them are publicly traded. So they have to might be associated with this production method. And if you read through some of those statements, they're pretty scary and apocalyptic. There's a risk of escape of genetically modified material into the environment. There's uh, there is an acknowledgement that there's biohazardous waste that, that results from this process that then has to be incinerated. So more fossil fuels used to in, incinerate um, waste from this production cycle. Um, then you have all the social and economic issues. So you are able to synthesize dairy. What is that gonna do uh, to dairy farmers, to, to dairy workers? What do you do, you know, the social and economic impacts of, of some of these processes too? A lot of these companies today, like Impossible, you know, they say they'd love to, they want to eliminate animal agriculture. Everyone's in agreement. Industrialized animal agriculture is a big problem. Um, is the solution going to be uh, genetically modified, you know, conti continuing to grow GMO commodity crop fields and just redirecting it from, from living animals to microbial animals um, to get the, the same end result or not. So um, ultimately at the end of the day, there's a lot more questions than there are, than there are answers. What we do know from this industry is um, there's serious concerns about upstream risks and downstream risks from the process. And at the same time, as has always been the case with GMOs, the regulation is really weak. There isn't a lot of testing required by the government. The, the most strenuous you can say about them is typically these companies have to apply for GRASS status. That stands for generally recognized and safe. But um, the onus for the research falls on the company itself. So the company itself can do its own research, find that the product is safe to their own satisfaction, apply for GRASS status with the, with the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and Go about their business. I will say, um, and there's good cause for concern about this because there was a case in the 1980s, 1989, there was a company that using synthetic biology, precision fermentation, you decide what the term is, but microbially, microbially creating L-tryptophan, and they created it for an over-the-counter sleep aid. And uh, without a lot of excess testing and a lot of excess regulation, 
that sleep aid went on the market, on the open market, and something like 1,500 people were sickened by it. And I think it was uh, 54 people globally uh, actually died. And in, in follow-up, um, that product was withdrawn. And in follow-up, you know, it was identified that one of the one of the potential risk factors was the fact that this had been microbially derived um, GMOs. That that you know, there are a lot of questions around it. I don't know that uh, uh, they ever got to the bottom of what the what that outbreak was about. But the product was withdrawn, and it and it really caused some concern and some head scratching around um, around this precision fermented ingredient. That's interesting. I did never know that that tie existed with tryptophan. Uh, my family business goes back 45 years. So we we remember when tryptophan was legal and then it was illegal and then it was legal again. Uh, <laughs> you know, pulled off the market for like 20 years. And of course, they pulled off all tryptophan, not just that specific type from that specific producer. Very interesting. So we could, man, I'll tell you, you are a wealth of information. I would talk to you for another five hours if I could. This is really, really fascinating to me. I hope that I'm not the only nerd listening to this and finding fascination with it because I think it's really, really cool and frankly, startling in some cases for sure. This, I love that they, I mean, marketing being what it is, precision fermentation, mm -hmm. that doesn't sound anything close to genetic modification, does it? <laughs> sounds like good beer, right? Precision. Yeah, it sounds like we're making sauerkraut or pickles <laughs> or uh, kimchi or something, right? I like all those things. Yeah, right. Um, and then sin bio. That sounds more evil. Sin, yeah. sin bio. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Uh, really crazy stuff. Um, the further we move away from nature, uh, the more questions come up. One thing that you brought up that I think is is really important, and maybe it's a good way to close out this show, uh, is this whole, um, how do I put it? What I find probably the most concerning, I guess that's probably the best word because I, we see it with the EPA, we see it with the FDA, we see it with a lot of, a lot of different areas in the government. And that is that we have this innocent until proven guilty thing that we rely on heavily for our criminal justice system, right? Mm -hmm. What we need to shift here, in my view, is we got to go completely the opposite when it comes to food production. Mm -hmm. You know, guilty until proven innocent, because we don't know what we don't know about these things. And we don't know what stacking all these things does. We do know that glyphosate is a human antibiotic. We do know, you just mentioned in this precision fermentation process, that they're actually having to use antibiotics to kill off the original stuff, uh, microorganisms that are in there to create a non-animal milk or whey or casein or whatever they're using. And we know that antibiotics are creating all kinds of problems in human health. So there are a bunch of things that we know and a whole lot more that we don't know. And to just approve things as generally recognized as safe, which doesn't mean much, right? It's certainly a whole lot weaker than the organic standard that we talked about. Um, to approve it and put it out on the market and just hope for the best when we have autoimmune disease going, growing like a weed and autism growing like a weed. And like you said, type two diabetes is at epidemic status in this country and heart disease isn't going anywhere and all these different forms of cancer and everything else that we're dealing with. There's way too many questions that haven't been answered. And yet we just keep plowing ahead. Like there's no tomorrow when it comes to these things. 
I'm incredibly grateful to organizations like yours, the Non-GMO Project, for actually keeping an eye on things and at least giving us, if we can't stop what's happening, we can at least know what we're putting in our own bodies. And that is huge, uh, if, if nothing else. And of course, as I say all the time, we as consumers, the only vote that we really have that matters all that much when it's all said and done is how we're voting with our wallets. Mm-hmm. You know, where we put our money, what small farmers and or giant ag companies we decide to fund uh, with our grocery dollars. I think all of that matters more than anything else. And, and it's this type of education from organizations like yours and, and from you yourself that I think is just invaluable to the consumer. So I greatly appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate you taking this much time with me today. Yeah, thank you, Jared. Hopefully you've got a good uh, sound editor there that'll keep us on point and uh, and be be of use to your listenership, not just a, a long-sorted tale. So. Well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you stay with me one more minute and tell a story because I almost did in the middle. My niece is my sound editor. She edits the whole podcast, puts the things together. She suddenly ended up having her baby way earlier than we expected. I'll be editing this myself, so I'm sure it'll sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I bring her up is because the baby's so premature that she's not able to latch on and, and breastfeed like uh, her first two children were. Uh, so she's pumping milk for her. And thank goodness that's working and, and uh, she's able to feed her that way. But 90, I think it's 93% of breast milk has glyphosate in it. I think that's the number that I most recently read. So even at that beginning of life, those precious stages of life where we're trying to build the human microbiome during that first three or four years when babies are really becoming um, as immune as they can be to all of the various things that are going to be thrown at them in life. Um, we're that level poisoned in this country because of what's happening with uh, non or with genetically modified crops, the massive spraying that's going on and everything else. And if that doesn't startle you listening, I don't know what will. We have to take charge of what we're putting in our bodies, not just for us, but for our children, and our grandchildren, the same thing that everybody talks about with climate change, the same thing that we talk about with so many other issues that we deal with, we just simply have to put a stop to uh, some of these things that are happening. And the only way I really know how to do it is to educate and get people to spend their money more wisely when it comes to their groceries. Yeah, totally agree. And it's, I, I often will say, it's not really voting against, it's, it, it, don't vote against something, vote for something. And there are great solutions out there, organic, regenerative, non-GMOs, buy locally, buy the best food you can afford to buy. And I'm in agreement with you too, Jared, that I, we all want food to be accept, good, healthy, holistic food to be uh, affordable to everyone. Uh, the question that I will often ask is, um, why is cheap food so cheap when we look at the cost of healthcare and the cost of eating low quality food um, that's inexpensive may well be offset by what we pay pay with in terms of our health down the road a piece. So um, I say vote with your dollars for the world that you want to see. Um, you know, support your local organic regenerative farmers look for the butterfly, look for USDA organic, go to your, go to your farmer's market when it's in season and, and support folks um, that you can look in the eye and you know their values are in alignment with yours. Absolutely. I couldn't say it better myself, so let's wrap it up right there. Hans, 
I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Uh, I just may uh, bug you again and do uh, do a, a part two on this down the road. But uh, this was very enlightening, uh, super informative, and uh, I appreciate it very, very much. Thanks for joining me on Vitality Radio. You got it. Appreciate you, Jared. Well, I hope you loved that as much as I did. I thought that was one of the more fascinating interviews I've ever done on this show. Uh, really great thanks to Hans again and the Non-GMO Project. Remember, we do vote with our dollars, and we really do want to vote for the food that we want to consume and the world we want to live in. If you have any questions about anything you heard today on Vitality Radio, call us 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662, or jump over to vitalitynutrition.com. Thank you so much. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio.